Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Just about a decade ago, a 22-year-old who had created a website got a buyout offer from Microsoft. And the buyout offer was for a little more than half a billion dollars, reportedly. Now, the website that the guy had created allowed you to post pictures, to share text with other people. And he went to a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley named Roger McNamee and asked him, should I do the deal? Should I let Microsoft buy my company? And Roger McNamee told this young guy, his name is Mark Zuckerberg, you, you may have heard of him, uh, essentially, heck no, you should not do the deal. Now, ironically, McNamee had also been an early advisor to Bill Gates, whose company now wanted to buy Facebook. Uh, but Zuckerberg accepted McNamee's advice. He did not take the offer. And, you know, it turned out pretty well for him. So when we needed some good advice in our series on innovation challenges that are going to face the next president, we called up McNamee for his thoughts on the tech industry. Roger, it's great to talk to you again. Kara, it's really a delight. So if you had um, a couple minutes with the next president, whoever that person is, and you could tell them anything about the tech world and how you think it's going to change you know, over the next five to 10 years, what do you think you'd tell them? I believe that the technology industry has been the great growth engine of the United States for more than a generation. And I think the challenge will be to sustain that over the coming generation. There are signs that Silicon Valley bears more than superficial uh, similarities to some of the really great creative centers of history. And I'm thinking about ancient Athens or ancient Rome or Florence during the Renaissance. And the periods in which that great creative frenzy occurred were typically somewhere between 30 and 70 years. And we are at the longer end of that range now for right. Silicon Valley. And so one of my great fears is that, and you can see this in the behavior of a lot of participants here, that we are still incredibly energetic out here. We're still very active. There's a frenzy and lots of excitement. But increasingly the things that people are directing that energy to are less significant, less important, less helpful than many of the activities that came before. Is that because people have shifted into, I don't know, a solely money-making approach and are thinking less than maybe the early pioneers did, you know, the, the intels and stuff about changing the world? Or what has shifted? What makes you think mm, maybe we are in the twilight here of Silicon Valley? I don't know that we are in the twilight years. I think that's the risk. And I think that the, the reason is simply too much success. And I think inevitably, whenever there is creative energy in a community, the light shines brightest early. And, you know, there is, if we think back to the 70s when Intel was inventing the microprocessor and then Apple later comes out with uh, the first modern personal computer, in those days, the sense of adventure that those people had was not tied to an expectation of wealth creation. Right. They were doing really interesting things with uncertain benefits all the way around. And even when it became clear that Silicon Valley was an engine for creating wealth, there was a generation of people participating here whose first order motivation was to change the world. 
And if they did that, they hoped they would be successful financially. And you go through 50 years of that, and it's not surprising that you're going to attract a lot of people into the community. And the number of people out here is just a lot more than it was before. And at the margin, the vast majority of them are coming out here with their primary desire being to get rich. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I don't think it's consistent with producing the kind of really exciting, wonderful society-changing benefits that this community has produced every once in a while over the last 50 years. So if you were telling that to the president and you were saying, gee, I I don't know, we have had this amazing run. I'm not really sure where things are going. I'm worried that, that, that the emphasis is maybe shifting a little bit too much to money. What could a president, what could anybody in government do about that? To be clear, I don't think the issue is just the culture out here. I think okay. this, the culture of America has changed. Mm-hmm. We have for at least 36 years had a political system where the conflict was between those who wanted to move forward and those who wanted to return to some past era. And those who want to return to the past have been more successful on average in our system over the last 36 years. And locked into their worldview has been a lack of appreciation for science, for education in general. And one consequence of that is that the population of the country is, I think, less well-informed than it would have been a generation or two ago. And I think it makes it more challenging for the people trying to innovate because there is less substance to the desires of the population than there would have been in the past. And you sit there and you go, oh my gosh, how do we get growth going again? Well, to me, it's like the most obvious thing on earth. It's time to invest in ourselves. And so you look at this and it's not, you know, there are all these people who sit there and say, well, if we could teach every kid to program, that would solve the problem. That is nonsense. I mean, programming is useful, but it is also increasingly commoditized because the technology is getting so good that, you know, programming 30 years ago was an art. The people who could program the Apollo moon lander to go to the moon, that was true art. But now when you have unlimited technology available, unlimited storage, unlimited processing, unlimited memory, programming is just not that big a deal. The real problems are having the national debate be about things that actually make people better off. I mean, what's so ironic is that increasingly people vote against their own economic self-interest. And whoever the next president is, is going to have to face up to the fact that the country has a lot of potential that's not being realized. And technology is part of the answer, but it's not the only part. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking to Roger McNamee, a venture capitalist and an early advisor to both Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. So if people in Silicon Valley think of themselves, as I think many of them do, as progressive, as forward thinking, as embracing technology rather than, you know, looking back to this past that you talked about before, why are they not able to confront some of the big institutional challenges that that have people in this country so worried right now? Or are they? Are they up to that? There's a flaw in your initial assumption, okay? And that is that people in Silicon Valley are progressive. I actually think they're meaningfully less progressive than they were 20 years ago. I think the younger generation has very deep libertarian values. And, you know, there's a TV show on HBO that I've been able to uh, help a little bit called Silicon Valley. Yeah. And that show is all about 
the battle between the hippie value system of Steve Jobs Mm -hmm. and the libertarian values espoused by Peter Thiel and other people. Uh, Peter Thiel being from uh, PayPal and uh, venture capitalists now. And the reality of the thing is that the libertarians have won. Now, within that context, many of these people would describe themselves as having progressive views. But in general, they're in favor of letting the markets take care of things. And for the most part, their empathy is not a long suit for them. And, you know, in a world where there's very little trust, empathy is an early casualty. So I look at Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley recruits using a mirror. And when you start with 90% of your employees being in a very tight demographic, which is to say white and Asian males who went to Stanford, um, (laughs) it's super hard to break out of that because in many ways, it's a a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week model that people operate out in the Valley. And as a result, the social aspects are super, super important. And many of these males have never had a woman friend and, you know, just don't have any idea how to operate successfully with people whose backgrounds aren't the same. It's like a shorthand, right? If you hire people who are just like you, there's a whole set of things you don't have to worry about, right? You can, quote, just get down to work and deal with it, right, and ignore everything else. Well, and you also don't make space for people who, like, have a couple kids at home, it sounds like, and and maybe you're the primary caretaker of those children. There's hardly anybody old enough at many of these companies to have two kids at home. I'm serious. Within the startup community, the notion of having somebody over the age of 30 wouldn't occur to the vast majority of the entrepreneurs. And so you have companies of people in their 20s living in dormitory-style apartments, and It's fun. It's entertaining. It's like a frat house. Go look at any frat house. Frat houses are not typically bastions of diversity. And, you know, so that part isn't a shock. The part that's really surprised me and disappointed me enormously is I believe that whether you accept the moral argument for diversity or not, the economic argument for it is unstoppable. And if people don't recognize that Silicon Valley is going about as far as it can off of selling to rich white people, then it's not much to talk about. But I look around going, you know, if we thought about it, we'd recognize that there are, what, 7 billion people in the world and they look really different and they have very different backgrounds and very different needs. And you could sell product to a lot more of them if you understood what their situation was, if you had empathy, if you had experiences that were common. And our ability to adapt that way will go a long way to saying how relevant Silicon Valley is 20 or 30 years from now. Hmm. You know, if we are like Florence in the, in the, the Renaissance and like uh, ancient Greece or ancient Rome, you know, the window for Silicon Valley to keep changing the world is probably pretty short from here. And by the way, that's not a law. That's just, generally speaking, it's hard to sustain these things. And we need to reinvent ourselves. And my recommendation is that we go for maximum diversity because I think that would give us another 100 years worth of life. If you think about the growth in the top tech companies over the last few years and how big some of those companies are and how powerful they are and how the kind of effect they have on our lives. And, you know, and now we're talking about let's say, the smartphone becoming the central focus of our identity and how we do business and how we connect to people and all of that. Do you worry that 
some of the biggest companies in Silicon Valley have too much power that, uh, you know, that in some ways that government should worry about that and that they run too many aspects of our lives. Absolutely. But I would point out that the challenge here is the judgment of the people. So the issue is not, in my opinion, that they have too much power. The issue is that they are not wise in how they use it. So within Silicon Valley, the question of the judgment of the executives is obviously going to be a really important issue. And one of the reasons that Apple has such loyal customers is that they appear to be genuinely concerned about the issues that actually matter to consumers. I mean, standing up to the FBI was not a politically popular thing to do. It took great courage. And it was really important because the FBI thing was not about that terrorist, right? They could have gotten in there if they wanted to. It was all about bringing Silicon Valley to heel. You know, I look at Facebook. Just recently, they had a problem where their algorithm would not let people post the Pulitzer Prize winning photograph of the young girl in Vietnam running away from the napalm. Because she was naked, right? Well, yeah, I guess. But, I mean, that's not like the obvious part of that photograph. And I simply observe that Facebook has an enormous responsibility, which to this point it has largely failed to acknowledge. And the inconsistencies in Facebook's judgment about what is acceptable to its community suggest to me that the lack of diversity in Facebook's employee base is a gigantic problem because if you went, in their case, it's not Stanford, it's mostly Harvard, but (laughs) the management team there all have very, very similar backgrounds. Not all of them, but most of them. And I say this with nothing but love. I mean, I was lucky to be one of the early investors in that company, and I'm really proud of what they've done. But I do think that this is an important time for them to step up and to be less disengaged with respect to the consequences of, of what their company does. Do you think that, that the next president will have more technological struggles? Like, do you think that they will have to deal more with technology as a negative, as something that's taking away people's jobs, as something that's automating jobs, or more as a positive? So to be clear, I don't think that the, the issue of technology taking away people's jobs is actually a new thing or actually a particularly accurate thing. To me, the economy is always changing. Some industries are always coming and some industries are always going. The notion that an industry is entitled to last forever, you know, the idea that we should have protected the buggy whip industry from the automobile, hardly anybody would take that seriously. The idea that we're supposed to protect coal jobs right now is laughable. What we're supposed to do is help retrain the people who work in the coal industry in clean tech and other next generation things, right? We have an absolute obligation to help them make that transition. And part of the conversation that the next president has to lead is returning us to a fact-based dialogue about issues like climate change where this isn't a choice. If we persist down the path we're on, we're not going to be able to breathe long enough to count all the money we've made. And, you know, technology can be part of the solution, but there's no automatic reason. It's totally a function of the choices made by the people who control it. And increasingly, technology is not just the domain of Silicon Valley. It's clearly the domain of Wall Street. It's clearly the domain of the auto industry. It's clearly the domain of of pharmaceutical industry and many others. 
Roger McNamee is a co-founder of the venture capital firm Elevation Partners. He was an early investor in Facebook, among other companies. Roger, thank you so much. It has been a great pleasure, Kara. On our website, we've got some more tech predictions from Roger, areas of the economy that he thinks are going to be hot, and then some that he thinks need some serious attention. That's at innovationhub.org. You can also hear my recent discussion with John Hockenberry of The Takeaway about great innovation challenges that will face the next president. That's at thetakeaway.org. If you're unsure who to vote for this election, you're a very special person. And if you live in a state where the polls are the least bit close, you're probably getting a lot of extra attention, though I'm guessing a lot of it is unwanted attention. But have you ever wondered how politicians know that your mind's not made up? How do they know what you're thinking? Well, the truth is they know a lot about all of us. They know about our families. They know what we buy, what we watch there's a good chance they even know where you like to vacation. And nestled in all that data is the profile of that really rare bird, the undecided voter. One pioneer in knowing all this stuff was Karl Rove, who was the architect of George W. Bush's two presidential campaigns. Rove married old sales techniques from business with incredibly sophisticated data analytics. And in 2004, the second Bush campaign, he was on fire. They micro-targeted the population to a point of inefficiency, but they they managed to find uh, farmers in Minnesota who were getting sugar beet subsidies, and they sent a few thousand pieces of mail to this group of people who were sugar beet farmers just about Bush's agriculture policy as it related to sugar beets. Sasha Eisenberg is the author of The Victory Lab, The Secret Science of Winning Campaigns. And he says politicians have gotten more and more reliant on data science over time until this year, which has been pretty surreal. This year is almost as though I had designed a thought experiment to answer a lot of the questions that I and others have asked uh, as we've sort of seen the innovation that's taken place in, in campaigns over the last 10 to 15 years in that Hillary Clinton is running this sort of state-of-the-art, well-funded campaign that somebody who has 18 months uh, which is a really unusual period of time for a political campaign. They've sort of developed the type of R&D agenda that, that that a campaign that's planning to spend a billion dollars and has 18 months would do. Right. And Donald Trump is not doing any of that stuff. He has a, a sort of coherent, principled distrust or sort of skepticism, I guess, about um, these various parts of campaigns that I've spent a lot of time reporting mm-hmm. on, which in many respects are the parts that have changed the most. Right, like the sort of newfangled stuff is not e- stuff he's a fan of. Yeah, I mean, you know, the one newfangled thing that he is clearly a fan of is Twitter, which I would argue, even though it's on a screen or a mobile device, it's high tech, but it's low sophistication the way he uses it. He basically uses Twitter the way a campaign in, in the 1940s might use billboards or, or somebody in the 19... 19- 
60s might rent a skywriting plane to go over a beach where they thought a lot of voters would be before Labor Day. It's it's obviously digital, but it's not. It, he uses it as, as a sort of you know very simple uh, mass media broadcast tool. Right. But most of these innovations that that I wrote about in my book and have have sort of followed since are about individually targeted communications at voters and using data and analytical techniques to to sort of profile individual voters, even if a campaign has never interacted with them individually so that you can specialize or personalize your contact with him. And he does absolutely none of that. He's basically about amplifying one message to as many people as he can get in front of at any point in time. And that's that's totally at odds with, with the way that most campaigns think about how to use their resources and look for efficiencies and prioritize the types of of interactions that they have with different people based on their their individual attributes. Is there an era that his campaign reminds you of where he's running a campaign that feels like it's from what? I'd say the 1970s, which is when television advertising came into its own. Almost all television advertising was purchased nationally. You know, the, the sort of saying was you cut three checks over the campaign. You cut a check to ABC, to CBS, NBC, hmm. and you buy national ads. And so that was a function of it was pre-cable. And, you know, in some of these elections, there were 40-plus states that were in play. So if we go back to, to 2004 and what Karl Rove, you know, the sort of famous uh, architect of the, of the George W. Bush campaigns, what he knew about people. And when you got into that idea of being able to micro-target people, what did they know about Sasha Eisenberg and Kara Miller? And what did they do with that info? Sure. So there are basically, I think, four sources of data about individual voters. And these are collected in databases that are called voter files. Presidential campaigns now have access to what they call national voter files, a database of every registered voter or even voting age person in the United States. And the, the basic data set in there comes from registration records. So I go register. I'm currently in Franklin County, Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio. Let's say I was a resident here. I go to register. And there's now a public record with the county that I have, have signed up to register in 2016. Right. Ohio doesn't have party registration. A lot of, a lot of states do. Um, if I signed up as a Democrat, or Republican, that would go on my registration record. You'd have my address. You'd have my gender. You'd have my date of birth, so you know my age. And then every time I go cast a ballot, that gets basically put down on my my permanent record with the, the county board of elections or the secretary of state. And so each of those instances becomes another variable. Did you vote in the special election for county executive? Did you vote in the the presidential primary? Did you vote by mail? Did you vote early? So a voter might have a few dozen data points just attached to their public record. The next sort of tranche of of data is the stuff that's tethered to your address. So um, you know my actual street address because I'm registered to vote there. And now you can use the census to get a sort of socioeconomic portrait of the neighborhood in which I live, which if you know nothing else about me other than the fact that I live in a neighborhood with a lot of single-family homes where a lot of people have college degrees, uh, where the average household income is is $70,000, you can infer a lot of things about my socioeconomic status if you know nothing else. And then you can get the precinct-level voting returns for basically my neighborhood. And so that's the smallest unit at which Votes are counted. And so you know, you know, 
basically how my polling place has voted in the past. So you could see, if, do I live in a Republican neighborhood? Do I live in a Democratic neighborhood? Hmm. Do I live in a neighborhood where there's a big variation in turnout between primaries and general elections? The big innovation that took place in the sort of 2000 to 2004 period was bringing in information from private data sources, consumer data warehouses. And these were companies that started actually to collect information for those credit rating scores and then became useful for direct mail marketers or charities to go prospecting. But they would buy up personal data from magazine subscription lists. I was going to say, this seems like why you get catalogs that, for example, you've never gotten before and you've never bought from. Like They don't know who you are. But presumably, they're buying lists knowing that you make a certain amount or you buy things like that from other exactly. you know, clothing stores right. that are kind of similar. So so basically, if, we, if I went to the Clinton campaign and I could get all the info they have about me, they've yeah. got a lot. They've got a lot. And, and the difficulty now, and this is where the statistical modeling comes in, is sifting through, let's say, a thousand data points about you which could be, do you live in a Democratic neighborhood? How old are you? Did you vote in the primary in 2008? Um, Did you take a cruise last year? Do you subscribe to highlights for children? (laughs) Right, like all of these things. And figuring out which one tells me anything useful about your politics. And so, you know, an algorithm is a, basically a very long equation that weights the individual influence of different variables to predict the answer to a question. Right. And the question that campaigns care most about is, who do you plan to vote for? Or whom do you support? Uh, how likely are you to vote in November? And then sometimes, you know, do you own a gun or are you pro-choice or something like that? And so these algorithms can weigh the influence. What you find is they may know a thousand things about you, but maybe only 30 or 40 of them are actually making a meaningful contribution to profiling you in political terms. And it right. turns out that whether or not you took a cruise probably is available to the Clinton campaign, but totally useless to them. Right. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Sasha Eisenberg, who's author of the book The Victory Lab, The Secret Science of Winning Campaigns. So once a campaign does know whether I subscribe to Highlights for Children and, you know, what kind of car I drive and what gender I am and how old I am and all that, great. What do you do with that information? Yeah. So the most basic thing that campaigns do is this sort of triage uh, in targeting. And, you know, the first important decision that a campaign makes, and and we journalists are horrible at at writing about this, is deciding who not to talk to. But so the first thing they want to do is make a good prediction about who's already likely to vote for them and who's never going to vote for them, either because they don't vote or because they support their opponent. And you sort of want to push those people aside. The ones who support you, maybe you want to get them to give money and to volunteer. And you contact them on those terms, but you don't really care about them as voters. And then you're left with a pool of people whose sort of future behavior is uncertain. And the two groups that campaigns care about are people who are already likely to vote. They are basically habitual voters, but their opinions are not locked in. Or people who are already basically on your side, but they're not regular voters. And so, you know, the first group is is what campaigns call persuasion targets. You know they're going to vote. You want to change their opinion so that they vote for you. And the other group are called mobilization or get out the vote targets. These are people uh, who you don't need to give them any more reasons to vote for you. You know, in this case, if you're Clinton's campaign, you know that if they vote, they will vote for Hillary Clinton. Right. The question is, are they going to come out that day? Exactly. They need to be nudged, reminded, cajoled uh, into voting. And so a lot of basically the big project for, for folks who do campaign analytics is figuring out how to most 
intelligently and efficiently sort voters into those two buckets and then start to look at, okay, now, especially on the persuasion side, which messages can I give to those individual voters that will be most likely to move them? What method of communication are they most likely to respond to? Um, Can I reach them through digital ads? Are they most likely to read direct mail that comes to their mailbox? Mm -hmm. Can we get to their door if we go on a Tuesday night with a volunteer to read them a script? All analytics is kind of moving towards those questions of who do we talk to when and what do we say when we do. If this is a big thought experiment as to how does it work if you have all the modern technological bells and whistles on one side and you've got kind of none of that and you're running a campaign from 1976 on the other side and you have what in national polls for the last several months has been more or less a very close campaign in a in a country that more or less is very divided and we knew that years ago maybe just all this tech stuff maybe all these sort of new things that that you know you can use if you if you have the money and you have the techies on your side maybe they don't matter as much as we thought They might not matter as much as we thought, in part because I think that we're way too inclined to credit elections to one thing over others. You know, the second debate is why, you know, Mike Dukakis lost that election. No, Mike Dukakis lost because of a combination of a whole lot of things. And we're we're doing a sort of disservice, I think, to, to all of this to put it on one. The other thing I would say is that a lot of the innovations that have taken place and a lot of what the Clinton campaign is, has focused on, uh, to the exclusion of other things, is focused on that, that mobilization group I was talking about. And these are people who, you know, what you're doing is not trying to change their opinions. You're trying to modify their behaviors. And we don't see the fruits of that until Election Day. And polls are very bad at picking up in August or September whether people are going to vote in November. Because we can't really anticipate two months ahead of time whether – Somebody from your community is going to knock on your door the Sunday before the election Mm -hmm. and remind you what time the polls are open and tell you uh, how to get to the firehouse and maybe if you need it, get a babysitter for you or or an offer to drive you to the polls and that somebody's going to call you the night before and once again remind you and that you're going to get a a targeted digital ad then that points out that it's election day and that at 5 p.m. on election day, somebody's going to come by and and, uh, ask you why you haven't voted yet. And so it is reasonable to suspect that the structural advantage that Clinton has will not reveal itself fully until we get to the point where the only challenge left is to turn out people who might not be that crazy about her, right. but to, to sort of, you know, all this drudge work that happens of, of you know, real non-famous people in their own communities mobilizing their neighbors, which requires this huge sort of data infrastructure behind it to do well, and a lot of resources planned ahead. I think that that's a place where if the polls are wrong or misleading this year, one way in which they are likely to be is that the people who are showing up as Trump supporters in polls will be less likely to vote because they're, hmm. they're not getting that sort of nudge from the campaign when, it, when, when the time comes to actually cast a ballot. That's interesting that you can't kind of measure it until right. Election Day comes. Exactly. Finally, I wonder if you think that the playing field, you know, we talked about the Republicans really being pioneers in terms of changing campaigns and inventing the modern campaign with direct mail and with Karl Rove. I wonder if you think that it's a non-level playing field in any way for for Republicans and Democrats now because so many techies, so many people that would be the people who would sit sort of in the bowels of a campaign and do the data science and crunch the numbers and be the software engineers, 
so many of those people are Democrats. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, think about Silicon Valley and like how liberal Silicon Valley would skew if you were only holding an election there and there'd be no contest. Yeah. Do, does that really advantage uh, the Democrats here with all these new bells and whistles or, or not really? Yes. And, and I would actually expand it beyond the sort of Silicon Valley tech world to include the academic social sciences, right, which right. have become incredibly useful at designing and executing randomized experiments, which is the best way that we have to actually empirically determine whether an ad works better than another ad or it's more effective to knock on somebody's door at 7 p.m. or 4 p.m. All these things we've started huh. to learn yeah. about what really works in campaigns are being measured through randomized control trials. They're basically drug trials for politics where instead of giving these two people a pill and that person a placebo, I send them each a different piece of direct mail and then whether I see whether it changes somebody's opinion or makes them more likely to vote. And those big innovations combined with sort of advanced statistical modeling techniques and then all the sort of hard skills of the tech and digital worlds, yeah, are, are it's a lot easier for Hillary Clinton's campaign or, or Barack Obama's campaigns to get folks to you know, yep. Uh, Come down to headquarters and give me a sense of, of how exactly. I could uh, use your research to help me. And, and the initial innovations that took place in the 80s and 90s that gave Republicans a big advantage were coming out of the corporate world. Huh. They were taking often direct marketing techniques that were pioneered by Fortune 500 companies uh, like direct mail and, trans and, and segmenting the electorate in, in those sort of primitive ways of the 1980s, uh, list building, all of that stuff. Um, and, and I think you can see that closer ties between the people who did marketing for, for, for corporate America and the Republican political class in the, in the 80s and 90s help them leverage those advances more quickly. Mm -hmm. Now we see that politics has learned everything it's going to learn right now from, from consumer marketers. And in many respects, the most sophisticated political organizations are ahead of the most sophisticated consumer marketing organizations. They work faster. They're more refined in, in their use of data. But the gains that they can have are developing software, hardware, systems, uh, user interface, and then also these insights from uh, sort of academic social sciences. And I think that there's a big cultural problem, which is that until Republicans can get the people who have some of those skills to come work in their campaigns, they're going to have trouble filling out their staffs with the types of, of, of skills they actually need. And the challenge, there actually are people who know how to do advanced statistical modeling very quickly in a high-risk environment and are used to working under campaign-like pressure and also believe that the top marginal tax rate should be a lot lower. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. the next guy who can hire a bunch of people from a hedge fund trading floor and come work for, for a Republican presidential campaign will probably be able to shrink that advantage very quickly. But I have yet to see anybody on the right really go into that world and, and start poaching talent. Sasha Eisenberg is author of The Victory Lab, The Secret Science of Winning Campaigns. Thank you so much. Thanks. This was fun. So Sasha Eisenberg mentioned that he felt like Donald Trump was running a campaign from the 70s. Well, Politico did a great picture gallery of American icons that Trump has been compared to, and they asked historians to weigh in on the accuracy of each of those comparisons. You can find it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio.
just about 100 years before Apple rolled out its iPhone, Ford rolled out the Model T. It was kind of awkward looking. It had these enormous wheels. And the part where you sat looked a lot like what had come before, which was a horse-drawn carriage. It also got stuck in the mud all the time, and it had terrible fuel economy. But Model Ts, despite all those failings, were definitely the beginning of something. And they were a hot ticket. They were 800, 900 bucks a piece, and people bought millions of them. Kellyanne Adams Pletcher argues that just as the Model T might have been a little rough around the edges, smartphone technology, particularly something called augmented reality, is also, yes, rough around the edges. Still, it's changing how we tell stories and how we think about ourselves in relation to stories. Kellyanne is the founder of game developer Green Door Labs. Thanks for coming in. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start off with that uh, issue of storytelling. How do you think storytelling is changing right now? So I think this is really exciting because I think what smartphones are starting to do uh, is they're making us part of the story. And I think we're going to see that in the next you know, 50 years. The coming generations are not going to be content anymore with sitting and watching the stories uh, while they're in a dark room uh, or they're sitting down. They are going to want to partake. They want to be part of this story now. And this really sort of struck home for me when I went to Disney World. And I'm a huge fan of Disney World, of course, right? They're sort <laughs> of like, you know, the, the, the American god of play. Well, it's your, also your ability to like step inside a storybook. I mean, Walt Disney saw it that way. And and he um, had an apartment in Disneyland, Mm -hmm. where you know, above, I think, above the fire station. So he really wanted to be part of this world. Right. And it's interesting because if you go to Disney World, especially, you can really see the um, growth of play over the last 50, 60, 70 years, right? But now what we're seeing, and this is really exciting to me, is little kids running around and they're dressed as the princesses and they're dressed as the pirates and the new rides that they have like I was lucky enough to be able to play test it was like uh, Belle's Magic Kingdom or something where you got to sort of be part of Belle and the Beast's birthday party and they guide these kids through a story and it's a story of how Belle met the Beast and some kids are playing the horses and some kids are playing I don't know the villagers and you know and they guide them through and show them exactly what to do and they are getting to a point where they're expecting to interact and and expecting to be asked to interact and I think that's where we're going with storytelling with the next generation is that people are going to expect to respond not just sort of have the content delivered to them. Now, I wonder how augmented reality, AR, fits into all this. But just on the most basic level, what is AR? Okay, so it's a new term, and so I think there's a lot of ways to look at it. And I guess at its most basic level, you could probably say that playing pretend is augmented reality, right? Because you're layering a story on top of the real world. And so your most basic pretend is augmented reality, right? So if you're not Snow White, but you're pretending that you are, it's reality, but augmented. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. Exactly, <laughs> okay, right? It's like, it. you know, the floor. It just became lava. This happens at my house all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a natural human reaction. Of yeah. course we want yeah, things yeah. to be more interesting. And I think there's just more technology that's starting to catch up with that natural instinct to play and to make the floor lava and to, you know, have cracks that if you step on them, something blows up or, you know, something crazy happens. You know, we always tell these stories. We always have. So now the question is, well, how do we use technology in order to make these stories that are in our heads more tangible? And I think, you know, for some people, these stories are very, very real. You know, for some kids, like the floor is straight on lava. Like the floor is definitely lava. And then for other kids, they don't see that quite as much. They just don't enjoy that as much. And so now when you offer them technology where they can hold a phone over the floor and they see lava, they're like, whoa, wait a minute. It sort of gives them a door into this world of imagination. Well, so you've got phones helping to make uh, fantasy real. And clearly we have seen that in the uh, Pokemon Go craze. But in that case, it's not just an issue of uh, fantasy coming alive. There's also kind of an element of place to it uh, where stories meet your actual place in the world. Yeah, but you are uh, interacting with things that are only in this location. Like, right. for instance, like, I just got back from Japan. I had an amazing vacation. And my husband and I specifically got an internet puck so that we could catch a far-fetched. Because there are Pokemon that only exist in Asia. And you can only catch these if you go to Asia. So we wandered around Osaka for, like, five hours. <laughs> And we got two far-fetched, not just one. Now, did you feel like, no, wait a minute. I have flown all the way from America to Japan, (laughs) and here I am looking for Pokemon and and maybe not seeing Osaka or, you know, those five hours could have been spent at a museum or... They could have. Well, okay, so first of all, I think the augmented reality, like in museums, is an awesome, wonderful thing. But second, uh, we found this far-fetched in this really beautiful park in Osaka that we would never have gone to Mm. otherwise. It was this big open park. We were the only non-Japanese people there. People were playing tennis and hanging out. Um, We we put down two lures. I I don't know if you've played, but... No, I haven't. (laughs) I know. You have to you have to explain it right from the beginning. It's okay. It's okay. So what you can do is you can essentially, like, you tap a button and it will say, okay, now you've put a lure on this location and uh, the Pokemon will be drawn here. Well, everybody else, oh, okay. everybody else can also see um, that you put lures on that location. And so Pokemon aren't the only thing it attracts. It also attracts Pokemon players. <laughs> so, okay. So we went to this really random park in the middle of Osaka, not anything that any guidebook would ever tell us to go to. And we put down two lures and we waited and we met all sorts of Japanese people (laughs) from Osaka. And they came and they were looking for a far-fetched as well. And we, it's just a really neat environment. It, It was a beautiful park. I mean, these huge trees that sort of lined the streets. And then once the sun went down, there were all these beautiful lights in the park and there were fountains. There were all these really gorgeous fountains everywhere. And so it was a part of Osaka I would never have thought to look at. And to me, it was one of my favorite parts of my vacation. So it led you into uh, an adventure you wouldn't have had. I mean, a real adventure. A real (laughs) adventure, right? So here I have a fictional object that I'm looking for, and it led me to a real-life adventure. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with game designer Kellyanne Adams-Pletcher about augmented reality. 
So give me a sense, uh, beyond sort of the current craze that's attached to Pokemon, um, what are some other augmented reality experiences that might actually change how we live and how we tell stories? Sure. So there's probably going to be a lot of stuff. It's already in development. You can see some variations on this where you can go to the grocery store and you can sort of hold up your phone and it will do things like overlay ingredients for, you know, a certain object that you're looking for. So they'll be sort of So it's kind of like you go to the store, Mm -hmm. you think buttermilk. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting ingredient, but what can I put it in? And you get like all these different potential... put up your phone to the buttermilk and they're like, well, you can brine your chicken in buttermilk, right. you can make pancakes, whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, you could t- potentially do something like that. Um, you could go to a historic location um, where you hold it up in front of a sign and the sign is essentially a trigger and you, you know, press a couple buttons and mm-hmm. it will say more information about what it is that you're looking for. So the Pokemon Go is connected to GPS, right? And so it's the physical location that's triggering things. Right. But you can also trigger information with objects. Uh, American Museum of Natural History, uh, they did an augmented reality game that had a trigger, and it was essentially this little puck. Um, and so it looked co- sort of like a, a chip for you know, playing poker or something like that. And so you put it in the middle of your hand, and you go to a location, and you hold it in your hand, like at that location, you hold your phone in front of it, and it will pop up like this little worm, and it will tell you more information about you know where it is that you are and what's going on. Hmm. So, that's a, so that's a trigger-based augmented reality. And they also have things right now where uh, it's a different type of trigger, but where they'll essentially sell the trigger with the program. So, for instance, I think it's Disney um, has these coloring books, and you color it, and then you download the app, and you hold up the app over the coloring book, and then the character that you just colored comes to life. Wow, okay. So there's a lot of ways to do stuff with that, with toys too, right? So, you know, you have a toy, and you put it down, and then you download the app, and you sort of put your phone over the toy, and it'll it'll sort of do its thing. And that's been around for a while, but again, not the response that Pokemon Go really had. Uh, I think that the location-based storytelling is exceptionally powerful. I think that's really the one that you're going to see take off. Well, and you've done work using uh, smartphones to tell stories in museums, including a murder mystery at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, Talk a little bit about that. Um, It was a great project, really fun. It was just this uh, story where uh, somebody murdered Madame X, the famous Madame X, you know, the old John Singer Sargent painting that's in their portraits gallery. And you would talk to all the different pieces of art around the museum, and they would give you information about, uh, well, I I saw memory, which was another... How did they give you information? How did pieces of art give you information? Uh, Pretty straightforward. I mean, this really was just as an app. Um, And so, again, this is the power of mobile, right, is that you can have a story that updates in real time in your pocket. And so it would have a couple of different buttons. It was almost like a choose-your-own-adventure. You know, who do you want to talk to? Like, okay, I want to talk to the two faces of man, or I want to talk to memory. And so you click talk to memory, and then it sort of essentially gives you a new screen, and memory says, oh, well, look behind you. You'll see the two faces of man. You know, when they're good, they're good, but when they're really bad, man, I don't trust them. And, and it really gets down to the basic, basic stuff about layering a story on top of reality. Do you think that the way we live is fundamentally in some ways changing because now uh, the stories that we're going after 
are different. I mean, mm. movies changed the way we lived. I think you could argue, and yeah. radio, and you know, television certainly has changed the way we live. Yeah, I mean, so one thing that I really think has changed a ton is uh, permission to approach strangers and our ability to connect with people in a group and our willingness to make friends with people we don't know or that we don't have anything in common with. And that's something that I really see us being hampered with. I mean, certainly in the city of Boston, I mean, gosh, the world's most introverted city, right? Where everybody's like, I don't think they want that as their tagline, but but it could be. It kind of is, right? Like, you don't talk to people on the subway. Like, that would be rude, right? You You don't say hello to somebody that you don't know. Like, what an imposition that would be. Like, how how invasive it would be to, you know, to chat with your grocery store clerk, right? I mean, that's just the way that people function, at least, you know, in my neighborhood and in sort of the world that is New England. And increasingly, especially I think with women too, you know, where there's this sense that I think people are worried that if they say hello, that women will be offended or think that they're trying to hit on them. You know, the other way happens the other way around too. You know, if I just say hello to a strange man, does that mean that I'm asking for trouble or that I'm trying to pick him up or something? We've really lost these boundaries of how to engage with strangers. And I think that these storylines, this technology is giving that back to us. Kellyanne Adams-Pletcher is a game designer. She's the founder of Green Door Labs. Thank you so much for coming in. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Jonathan Gang. You can follow us on Twitter for musings about innovation every day of the week. We're at iHub Radio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. R.I. Public Radio International.